Hey folks, you're about to hear a conversation with two of my favorite thinkers, Anne Helen Peterson and Bryce Ward. When we recorded this a few short weeks ago, the world was different. In many ways, however, this pandemic has twisted the throttle on many aspects of burnout we discuss here. A virus doesn't necessarily discriminate. On the one hand, we are all under the same threat. On the other hand, the reality we are now in is, and likely will continue, to accelerate inequality in a wide variety of ways. I encourage you to think about this while listening. Be well and take good care. The classic example is the person who goes to an expensive law school and is like, okay, I'm going to take 10 years and work myself into the ground at like a high powered firm in order to pay off my debt, (laughs) right? Like there is, you have to pay that price in order to get that education that, you know, hopefully in 10 years, you'll be able to start living your life. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today we have number four in our Incentives and Instincts series, and I am super excited about this episode. Anne Helen Peterson returns to the podcast. Anne is senior culture writer at BuzzFeed and first appeared on this show back in July of last year. We talked about burnout, particularly among millennials. So we convinced Anne to come back and dive into the economics of burnout with our favorite economist, Bryce Ward. I'm excited for you to listen to this inspiring meeting of, well, at least two great minds right now. Okay, so we're back with, uh, I don't even know what uh, edition of Incentives and Instincts this is. Bryce, do you know? This is This is four. 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 And we have a guest. And Helen Peterson back on the podcast. Thanks Hi. for coming back. Of course. Really happy to be here. And this is our first guest on the series, Bryce. <laughs> like, no. We're sort of doing a thing. It Let's feels... hope it works because we have like three lined up after this. <laughs> You're revealing too much again. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, this is, a, this is a good experiment. And it's a pleasure to have you back. Uh, so we are kind of catching you maybe in the editing process for the book. Are you, you heavy in that right now? I'm just finishing final edits on the book. What's that like? You know, it's not as rigorous a process as you might think. Uh, I think Not like peer review? Not Oh, it's way more rigorous than peer okay, review. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the way that I've thought of my editing historically, the least editing that I've ever received has always been peer review because then it's mostly like, you didn't think of these two people right. somehow wedge this into your sure, argument. Sure, sure. You didn't kiss these rings? Yeah, you didn't kiss these rings. Um you know, sometimes there is a, a good, a couple of good suggestions in a peer review, but they have nothing to do with craft or style right. or argument. <laughs> right. Uh, so, what I'm used to now as a journalist writing online is an incredibly thorough line edit that you know each of my pieces goes through several different edits, yep. and it's it's really paying attention at the level of the word. And I think a lot of people are surprised that on the popular press book. Even with a major press, even, you know, doing like a big book, mm-hmm. there is just not a lot of time to edit. Like the editors themselves don't have a lot of time to yeah. allocate to the editing. Um, and so it's just it's more big picture in terms of uh, making sure that the chapters flow from one another and that sort of thing. Um, and there's less of that line editing. Okay. It, it comes in, but like it's not as much as, as the day to day. So journalists are horrible writers for books 
because we have such high expectations for what the editing process is actually going to be like. Sure. So it's sounding like the demands on your time were much greater for, for initial deadline than they kind of are now. Yeah. I mean, the hard thing, and this is not unfamiliar for academics, is that I I work my, my real job Monday through Friday. And right. for the last six weeks, every single weekend, all of my time is doing the book edits. Mm. So it's just all, you know, I'm burning out on writing a book about burnout. That's but very, I, yeah. I knew that was going to happen. It happened this summer when I was writing it. I knew that it was going to be something that would happen during the editing process. And so the release date, you said September? September 22nd. And is the title locked? Yes. That's the best title ever. It's called Can't Even, colon. <sighs> I'm in a former academic. You yeah, you got to have, have a colon. colon. Yeah. Um, uh, can't Even, colon, how, bur- how Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. And so just for listeners that haven't been kind of following your work, how are you conceptualizing burnout? Like, what, what is it? Yeah, burnout technically, clinically, is when you work to the point of exhaustion and then, like, kind of drop out of the workforce. Um, and that's certainly how I used to think of it. And the way that I'm thinking of it and what I diagnosed with myself and what the article that I wrote that is now becoming the book speaks to is a a condition that's much more just, uh, you could call it uh, workaholism, which is what it was called in the 90s, um, plus all of the other pressures that uh, coagulate, coalesce around millennials. So economic precarity, massive student loans, uh, the continued effects of graduating, whether from high school, college, or graduate school, straight into the the recession in the late 2000s, and then digital technologies making everything worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I'm thinking of that, Bryce, how are you? When, when, when Anne was describing this dropping out of the workforce, I was thinking, oh, economists, workforce labor participation, whatever, workforce participation rate or whatever labor measure it is. Participation rate. Yeah, whatever that fancy <laughs> Get statistic. Our right. <laughs> right. LFP. 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 Okay. Um, is this something new? Or are we calling it something different? So there's, there's, you know, I, I like how you tied it to workaholism because I think that's probably what it was when we were. It were I, uh, I understand. I mean, I certainly age, have uh, known people described as workaholics. Uh, you know, so it, it's, it's, you know, it's important to try and separate the stuff that's being young right. from the stuff that's actually a... And then there's two. There's cyclical change, which is part of the recession. You know, so that's, you know, uh, what what is the actual uh, cohort range of a millennial? Millennials are 1981, born in 1981 through, I believe, 1996. Okay, so you had a 15-year period of, yeah. you know, academically, we know from research that if you graduate into a recession, it affects your career. Yeah. Right. You are on an entirely different trajectory. Well, it's it's not just you know. So a you don't get the right sequence of job, but my own hypothesis. I don't know if I got this from a paper or not. But like, is it also changes your expectations? Hmm. Yes. Right. And as a result of that, my you know, power in part comes from I expect more. Right. I'm. I, you know, I won't take that job, or I know I won't take that task, or no, I won't. You know, I'll leave. I'll do whatever it is. And I think if part of going through that kind of period of job scarcity, it it scars you, for lack of a better term. Yes. And that part of how that then you know plays through. So there's a cyclical aspect to 
particular years sure. within the millennial cohort. Now, the Great Recession was long enough that's probably, you know, I mean, we took us, I mean, technically the, the Great Recession is really just like 2008 and 2009, but the recovery really takes a long time. You know, sure. we're, we're now in a non, you know, so people who are graduating now are graduating into, you know, oh, hey. Life and is they're good. Gen Z. Yeah. You know, it's a different cohort. Yeah. But, you know, but, you know, so, but to the extent that you were, you know, you kind of, there's, there's, def- there's definitely, there's a, the, the cyclical aspect, right? Um, and then there's what we'll call structural, right? There's stuff that's just, you know, kind of maybe slowly or even non-slowly changing over time, right? And, you know, you see a lot of that, you know, so a lot of this discussion skips us, just goes, leaps Gen, Gen X and just says, well, we're going to compare it to the boomers. Yep. Right? And yeah, if being, I was so boomers were 25-ish in 1980, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so being 25 in 1980 and being 25 in, what, 2010, I guess that's kind of the middle-ish of the, of the millennial generation, uh, those are very different experiences. Um, but, and But similar in some ways, too. Because, yeah. and I think actually boomers more, they're coming into adulthood in the 70s. So they're coming into adulthood during, and you know this better than I do. I only know it from reading people. <laughs> but uh, like during a real shift in the economy. Yeah, stagnation. Stagnation. Yeah. Stagnation. Right? stagnation. Like the end of the golden age of the American economy, like which had only been around long enough that they thought it would be around forever. Yeah, yeah. basically you know? their childhood, <laughs> yes. right? The 50s and 60s. And, and, and their internalization of what was possible to achieve as hmm. a middle class person, right? And so what came clear to me through the research for the book, this was not something I understood at all when I was writing the article, is that our parents, millennials' parents, boomers in various places in that, in, in that cohort, they were also experiencing precarity and, and weird expectations and like going nuts with like, how do I deal with this? And part of that, you get yuppies as, as one right. coping mechanism, right? And like the yuppie strategy. But then you also just get incredibly like helicopter parenting strategies is like how can i somehow ensure middle classness for my kids if i'm scared of falling out of the middle class and do you think there was any parallels in terms of political uncertainty too i mean you're describing this mid-70s coming of age i mean we're in a time right now where we have tremendous sort of just like distrust in institutions yeah, all that stuff. yeah totally yeah yeah okay so we sort of have some Disagreement on kind of what this is all about from an economic standpoint. I mean, how, how prominent has has the economic um, piece been in your investigation? You know, I think that it really depends because some of the burnout behaviors that people talk about are very bourgeois millennial burnout behaviors. So it's people who have, you know, mental work jobs that the work spreads out into all of these different parts of their lives. So these are people who are using things like Slack, right? You have a certain type of job that you have if you are using Slack. Or people, did you call those the greedy jobs? Is that, that what you're talking that's about? One of, yeah, greedy yeah. jobs are jobs that like continue to ask more of you and and contribute to the fact that like women can't rise within those jobs because they right. are less able to give themselves over to that greediness. Um, but then you also have burnout in terms of people who are in working class jobs, which have just gotten crappier and crappier mm-hmm. in terms of pay and, and you know stagnant wages in terms of inflation, but also you know, using 
technologies for scheduling that make it so that you can never predict your schedule um, or like specifically understaffing so that people if there is like a sudden rush of people you are chronically understaffed and then people just yell at you like those jobs whether it's in retail or fast food or whatever like those jobs just suck so it's like this engineered <laughs> what a company would probably define as optimization yes. is actually coming at a huge cost to the worker yeah yeah and so I think like when we're talking about where people lie or where people find themselves in terms of the economic effects, you have middle class people who feel like, how am I ever going to start saving for my kids' college education mm -hmm. when I'm still paying off my student loans? And then you have working class people who are like, how am I going to find a babysitter? Yeah. So it's a different, it's still, I think, part of this larger cluster of this cluster of feeling, but at the same time, it works differently according to class and all sorts of other identity markers as well. Sure. You know, Bryce, we, we talked a little bit about it before um, we started recording about, there's some indication that hours for that working class have actually gone down yeah. in some ways, but it's sounding like maybe the hours worked are, are more stressful in the sense that they're under harsher conditions and you're spread more thin or they're less predictable Etc. Yeah, so there's there's the two aspects, right? So if we just look at quantity of work, you wouldn't look at the data and say, oh, we're going to see burnout, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there was an increase between 1980 and 2000 mm -hmm. in terms of hours worked for young people regardless of education. But between the last 20 years, it's been relatively stagnant. Okay. Uh, and the, what, the extent there's been an increase, you're talking about fractions of hours in the average data. Yeah, right? yeah. So to the extent if we're going to say something is wrong, and that's kind of the whole premise of this thing is that there's something wrong, it can't be the quantity worked, uh, although at the higher end we'll talk about that. Um, there may be something to the spreading out. We actually do see that in not everywhere, but in very specific places like New York City, mm -hmm. right? So if you look at people with that are 25 years old with a college degree that live in New York City, they work a lot more than they used to, like six hours more than 1980. Okay. So, you know, there is there is true, we are just working all the time. But, you know, for, you know, let's go back to the working class person. Yeah, they're not working as much. They want to work more. We talked about in the last podcast. Yeah. Like a third of people want to work more hours. Right. Right. right? The problem is the predictability of the hour uh, and the fact that, you know, if you're talking about, so, We've talked about effort constraints, I think, on the pod, right? So we you know, so there's, there's we haven't no done a of, deep dive, but, but it's yeah, so come you up. have some yeah. effort, motivation, attention constraints. These are real things, right? So you know, we my my standard line is, I'm a time use researcher. I, I can find time, right? I can look at time diaries and I can say, yeah, you had time, like you watched TV for two hours and then you slept, you know, whatever. I I can find time, yeah, right. So the reason things didn't happen was because you didn't have the capacity to do it, right? And so how do you get capacity, right? So part of it's health, you know, you got to exercise and, you know, do your mental health, all that kind of stuff. But part of it is you have to recreate, then you have to do restoration, yep. right? And I think part of the challenge you have if you have a completely unpredictable schedule is recreation is planned, <laughs> right? I'm going to go to the lake. Right. Or I'm going to go to the river or I'm going to go for, you know, a long run or you know, whatever it is. And so to the extent that I can't plan my life, 
and I can't plan my childcare and I can't do all this. You know, there's just this effort tax sure. that comes with the lack of stability, which we do see. We definitely see this in the data, and I wish I had the, the data at my fingertips, but it's in the survey of household economic dynamics, which we talked about in the last podcast. They actually had questions on scheduling and all this kind of stuff. So you can see the share of people who have these issues, and it's, it's a real issue. And so, yeah, I can't restore myself so that I have the effort to do all the other things that I need to do if I can't schedule anything. And it sucks that I'm already poor because that's an effort tax in and of itself. Right. Uh, because every time I go to the store, I have to actually do the math on whether or not I can buy sure. the stuff yeah, in yeah. my grocery basket. Yeah. Um, you know, as you move to affluence, these things, these types of effort taxes go away. So you basically have, it's very easy to, if you're at the margin of the material security line that we talked about last month, to get to burnout, both because A, you're already at the margin of material security, which we know takes a lot of effort just to manage that. I love this New York Times article that came out recently where they basically ask if you could be poor. Yep. Uh, just dealing with the infrastructure of... Uh, so they, they, they sent yeah. out a survey to a random sample of Americans and basically asked them questions like, do you always open your mail? Uh, mm. Have you ever missed a doctor's appointment that you've scheduled? And you know, basically all these requirements that are frequently embedded into social safety net programs. And, you know, I think I did... So of the four questions that were released in the article, three are things that I do not do. Okay. Uh, I would be a terrible poor person. Maybe I'd have to learn. Maybe I, you know, I, could, I should give myself some credit for adapting. But like, you know, I hate mail. Mm-hmm. I never open mail. Um, anybody who's ever worked with me in a bureaucracy, it's probably, I'm sure I'm, I'm, most people are happy that I don't spend as much time here at the university anymore uh, because I just, I just ignore it until the last possible moment. Right, the the effort tax of having to deal with yeah. this is too high. I'm surprised you uh, even showed up today, Brian. Well, this is this was easy, right? There's no, there, I just had to show up, and like I was already here, so it was even right. easier. Right. Uh, but like you know, if you had sent me a paperwork and said fill this out, yeah, it wouldn't happen. This, yeah, that's just not. Uh, so and how does this resonate? As you you know, I'm sure you dug into this economic data. How does it kind of triangulate with your you because you did in depth qualitative. Uh, um, investigations as well. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you ground truth this? Well, one thing that I was thinking of when you're saying, you know, people want to work more. I've, I've heard that a lot. And with the irregular schedules, you know, not only does it make it more difficult to get a second job, because yeah, to yeah. get a second job, you need to know where your schedule is, which is why gig work has become so appealing as a second job is because you can wedge it in there, mm-hmm. but it is ultimately unfulfilling and also unstructured and feels like any time that you're not doing it, you feel like you should be doing it. So there's no on and off time there or restorative time. Um, and then also, too, if you are in a job that, let's say, you're at 37 hours and you're so you're not getting any benefits. Yep. And it's crappy and you feel crappy <laughs> and it's uh, it's also, you know, irregular. It makes it really hard to go- to gather the gumption to look for another job. Or just the time. The, the effort. Well, yeah, like, time. The, time. Effort. the effort. Yeah, you know, okay. Looking effort. for a job is effort. Yeah. Yep. Right? And to the extent that you push somebody up against their constraint regularly, yeah. right? Yeah, of course. We've talked a little bit about power, right? And power in part is, you know, there's a market that's moving around and it's shifting your power. But mm-hmm. power is also within you, right? You know, how much... You have a personality, you have certain things, you have certain skills and traits, 
but I can't execute on my skill if I don't have the effort to do it, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, when I haven't slept very much or when I'm down in a tunnel because I'm behind on a project, I can assure you my parenting quality is not where I would sure. put the put it as, you know, where it, I would like to see it be. And that's just effort constraints in action, right? So, you know, take somebody and deprive them of a lot of effort through the workforce, through all the other stuff that you talk about in terms of, you know, social media and performance and all that kind of stuff. And you were just kind of shrinking the, the, the resources available for people to do other stuff which is likely to improve their well-being mm -hmm. and as well as their material security. And so it, there's definitely something just on the descriptive level, I think, that suggests that, yeah, people don't have their constraint, right? There is a constraint here and it, sometimes it's actual money and sometimes it's actually time. But a lot of times it's, and the literature, we don't have a good language for it, so I always jumble together effort, motivation, attention, um, because those are all different things that we tend to focus on. But to the extent that those things are tapped by managing life in 2018, and there are certain structural things that have changed that make it harder, right? So you talk about, a lot about debt in your work. Mm -hmm. Managing debt is hard right it's really hard you know it's you know try and deal with uh, a call center employee on your student loans right yeah where they have an incentive to get you off the phone in every in seven minutes and uh have very little incentive to actually help you uh, yeah let's actually let's interject and talk about that because your piece probably about a month ago on documenting i think it was 12 people's experience paying off debt oh yeah yeah, and juxtaposed against your, you know, your own. You didn't tell your own experience, but referenced it yeah. in, in the front matter. You know, what, what did you learn during that process, and how did that kind of fit into this burnout piece? First of all, usually for these surveys that I do, I get you know thousands and thousands of responses because yeah. I get to use the BuzzFeed megaphone, as it were, to to spread the word about filling them out. They're just simple Google forms with questions that I think make millennials, in particular. A little bit more comfortable, even though you know Google's the devil, all these sorts of things. There is something to be said about filling out a form privately. Like people say things that they wouldn't necessarily say, even if I was on the phone with them. Uh -huh. But for that particular one on on paying off your debt, I got like I don't know, like probably under a hundred, right? Because okay. it's really hard to pay off your debt as a millennial. <laughs> oh, yeah, so not uh, many have done and, it. And so one of the things that I um, wanted to do was. First of all, get you know a diversity of answers from people across the country in different sorts of situations and paying off different sorts of debt. Yeah. And then the second thing that I wanted to make clear, and the, the answers that I chose were able to, or people who were able to articulate this, was like just how freaking hard it is, <laughs> and also yes. how weird it is to dedicate yourself entirely to this thing. This abstract thing. Yes. It's actually not abstract. But. No, this thing that like somehow seems to be have have this huge, you know, yeah. moral weight on your life. And then what it feels like once it's done doesn't feel great. People don't feel great. They feel mad. Interesting. Yeah. Why? Um, because a, a lot of times, especially with student debt and medical debt, it's debt that shouldn't be there in the first place. 
right? So they right, they, like I just paid the man for years, and I'm bitter about having to do that. Yep. And now I missed out on all this stuff. Yep, like it's they didn't live life for yeah. sometimes ten years of their lives. It's you interesting know? you mentioned the moral piece. I mean, oh, yeah. I grew up in a family where my parents had credit cards, but they paid them off every month, and that's that's an expression of some kind of privilege and, and ability to do that. And I remember during the financial crisis, you know, I met this guy who's probably 10 years younger than I, and he was walking away from a piece of real estate. And it, it, it was visceral. Like I had all these moral judgments about it. Like, how could you do that? Right. And, and, and then I found myself thinking like, wait a second, like, you're walking away from these financial institutions that have proven to be fairly corrupt. And so I'm like, I'm holding him accountable morally as an individual, yet not the institutions that he's walking away from. It just was interesting, like all this morality we attach to debt. Well, well, but not on the corporate level, right? Like debt is great. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, <laughs> yeah. yes, yeah, so we can make a moral, I mean, a, a rational argument that taking on debt in this interest rate environment is the smart thing to do. Right. Yet, it, it carries all this weight with it. Mm-hmm. On the personal level. And, and, yeah. and there's good debt, right? Like there's, if you buy a house within your means, whatever that is decided to sure. be, that is good debt. You know, like when we bought our house in Missoula, like both my parents and my parent, my partner's parents were like, equity baby, you know, like oh, yeah. so into it's debt. It's American like, dream. Parents just they just freaking love it. Love it. <laughs> they love it. I got pushed to buy a house in 2008. <laughs> I'm an economist who had been talking about a housing bubble for three years. And I'm like, I got married and people were like, oh, you're going to buy a house, right? And I'm like, I guess so. And I'm like feeling terrible the whole process. But like, you know, but it's just like, yeah, they're patting you on the back the whole way down the road. Yeah. And uh, I was like, yeah, well, you know. Well, I guess that plays in because there is this norm, this expectation that buying a house is what you do. It's some marker of success and adulthood and whatever. And now we live in this, I mean, this isn't true across the country, but in a lot of the coastal areas, places like Missoula in particular, like housing prices are crazy. Right. So you can't have this part of the the so-called American dream. Yeah. Or at least what has been told to you, like your measure of success is if you can buy a home. I mean, the other student loans are really part and parcel of this because I think a college education has been sold to to your generation, but especially to, to millennials as like the path mm. to success now. Yep. And so people, you know, college and any cost, people internalize that idea and you know, whether that meant taking out massive amounts of loans to go to the, and also to go to the best college if you can. Right, right. Depending on where you grew up. So sometimes there's that idea of like, it doesn't matter if they gave you any scholarship, like the best college, that will get you the best job, which is not necessarily true. It's true for like 1% of jobs, um, if even that. <laughs> but yeah, then also- not, I mean, there's not a ton of evidence. So to be, so the, we look just at the evidence on selective colleges. Yeah. Um, if you're a- minority going to Harvard might be worth it? Yeah. A New Angle is brought to you by First Security Bank and Blackfoot, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hi, this is Kelly Webster, Chief of Stuff at the University of Montana, and you're listening to A New Angle. But for most people, so the way we frequently do this is you'll find somebody who got admitted to a highly selective institution, but ended and didn't up, go. You know, yeah, choosing the local public 
thing, uh, be- largely because it was probably cheaper. Um, so there is a slight difference in who does it, but you know, we don't see, like I went to the University of Oregon, I don't feel like it handicapped me. Um, I can tell you very specifically what the difference is because I went to graduate school at a highly selective institution. So I got to see what the difference was. Yeah. But like, so yeah, so, you know, Harvard, the joke is that it takes a wonderfully diverse class of people and turns them all into investment bankers and management consultants. At least that's what it did in the late 90s. You know, and you see it happen in the dining hall, right? It's like you just go to the dining hall and everybody tells you this, you got to get this internship and then you got to do this. Sure. You know, you the pathway to some sort of high paying job is laid out for you. Mm-hmm. Comes with a cost in terms of there's lots of students who don't really want to do those things and they just get swept up into the path. Uh, that's what I'm supposed to do, quote unquote. But, um, but you know, you can go to a large public institution and the education is going to be very similar. Uh, it's your peers and the social network that's different. And depending on what you want to do, yeah, like you know, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you want to if you want to go work at Goldman Sachs, probably go to an Ivy League institution. But if you want to work at, you know, if you want to be a teacher, if you want to be a doctor, you want to be a lawyer. You know, there's a consumption benefit that sometimes comes from it. Yeah. Um, you know, being around all those smart people is fun. Networking. Um, the network benefit. But a lot of that has to do more with your race anyway, right? Or, and or, your class coming in. Like, yeah, or, yeah you're upbringing. You, know, you, can, you can certainly, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, colleges do do a good job of bridging divides, yeah. you know, in terms of, you know, allowing somebody from a, either a lower class or a different race or whatever it is to actually access uh, some of these things. You know, you can see it happen. Um, it's still, if you come from the higher class, it's of course easier because you get to operate on, on a different level, even within like a place like Harvard. Because um, there's these fancy clubs called final clubs and, you know, there's all these other networking opportunities that are very exclusive. for. Various. Yeah. So I guess the question is, are these institutions, do they compound existing forms of privilege or, 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 or which they probably do, but in a, which is greater, that compounding or... You know the, the opening up of, of doors for others as well. I, I don't know. Well, they have a lot more that. opportunity. They could uh, provide more opportunity if they were not committed to. At Harvard, it's there are six thousand undergraduates. Yeah, so. certain none of these institutions have increased the seats that many. No. Yeah, but right. if you increase the seats, then you inc- decrease the prestige, so they're not right. Harvard anymore. Right. Um, yes. I mean, like they, I, yeah, somehow the whole... they, they admit seventeen thousand graduate students, and somehow like <laughs> well, uh, someone's got to teach those undergrads, right? <laughs> well, they'll give I mean... any they'll give everybody who wants to pay the price an executive education of some form. Anyway, that's an aside. Well, yeah. but it, this goes like the idea of the education gospel, which is a term that was coined by an economist and a sociologist to describe this idea. That in order to succeed now in America, like college at any cost, the people who really are suffering from belief in that gospel are people who are suckered into for-profit colleges, you know, who don't finish college and thus don't have the degree benefit, but have the student loans and especially for-profit loans, which, you know, are oftentimes private and are much more difficult to get your hands around. The default rate is so different. Yeah. Right? So if you went to a standard four-year college and you graduate, uh-huh. the default rate on student loans is it's like 5% or something like okay. that. Okay. Right? It's, it's low, really low. Right? If you went to a for-profit college, mm. I think it jumps to 25. And if you didn't graduate, it's like 50. Yeah. Oh, um, wow. So like, you know, so yeah, the, uh, the gospel of higher education in the broad sense is useful, right? People do better with college degrees. But the problem is there's always a margin. 
And because it's a gospel, as opposed to a nuanced argument that's about <laughs> targeting the set of people for whom going to college actually is likely to, well, there are multiple layers of benefits to college, and sure. I believe that lots of people can benefit from some of those layers. Um, but on the pure financial aspect, right, if you're good mechanically, we actually know that you will do better not going to college. Yes. Right? Uh, you will earn more not going to college. Hmm. So, but we don't, we don't have, we're bad at nuance. Yeah. Right? We're bad at sort of nuanced norms, at least. You know, yeah, we're bad sure. at a nuanced norm. And, you know, so the challenge becomes is that when you have a margin of people for whom either college probably was just a bad choice to begin with, or look, there's a margin of people just have to figure it out, right? You go to college and you figure it out. But when you layer on top of that, the only way to access it and figure yeah, that out yeah. is to take on, take on all debt, the debt, right? That's where we run into the problem, right? So if I'm going to go through, I'm going to graduate, and I'm going to get a good job, the debt burden of college isn't crazy, right? But if I'm at a margin, right, that's where you can you can really screw somebody's life up because now... I didn't graduate. I didn't get a good, you know, the education that's going to get me a higher wage job. I spent a bunch of money. I now have this debt, this whole burden that I have to carry with me, right? The shame, the managing of it, the tax that comes from, I now have to have a job because I have to service the debt, yep. right? And so, you know, it's that, it, there's the, you know, it's a very specific margin, Right, which isn't small. I don't, I'm not using margin as as a as de minimis. I'm just saying margin in the economic sense as a you know there's a swing, right? Yeah, this uh, inflection point. Uh, and you know, I don't know what the solution is, right? Whether it's the elimination of the debt or it's the making sure we do a better job of not letting people take on the debt who maybe don't won't succeed with it or some hybrid of them. But there certainly is a problem where. It's, yeah, the problem isn't that we convince kids to go to college. For a lot, most kids, look, college is still worth it, right? You will, you will earn more money. You will make great connections. You will enjoy a, a, you know, a fun, consumptive experience. But it is expensive, particularly in the go to the best college, which is insane, right? Like, you know, University of Montana, if you live in Montana, is a very good school, Right particularly given how much you'll pay for it. Right. Right. And uh, taking on, you know, I mean, the personal anecdote that I heard was somebody who went out of state to a public college and took on like $90,000. People do that at Oregon all the time. Oh, no. Yeah. We call it the University of California at Eugene. <laughs> I know. Right? I like, did my master's there. <laughs> a third of my college debt is from out-of-state tuition really? for one year of my master's at University of Oregon. And because Why did you it, choose Oregon? Because, I mean, there weren't a lot of film studies there programs. There was the program you so, wanted. I missed so, this about you. I knew about Texas and Whitman, right? Yeah. So like, in film studies, there's a norm, which is a really dumb norm, that you do your master's somewhere and then you do your PhD somewhere huh. else. And what that does is just create it. Yeah, they're just trying to scam you longer. Yeah. Uh, and it, 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 like, it, it funds the master's programs that need to be in place. And so sure. some places have, you know, partial funding for master's programs or like Oregon it's like you can have funding after your first year which mm. if you don't know anything you're I was like okay I guess this is what it takes I didn't get it yeah no which is which is I think you know I mean when we talk we talked a little bit about this when we talked about the 
wealth issue yep. uh, last time. Last so, month. you know, there's, the, there's just the fact that there is the debt. Yeah. Right. But there's also just this lack of sophistication when I'm 21 or 18 or mm-hmm. whatever it is about when I'm signing up for this debt yeah. that I actually just, I don't know what I'm signing up for. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, you know, there's, a, there's that, that, you know, so part of, you know, it's, so, you know, I guess the, looking at the background here is, well, to what extent is consumer finance a good thing, right? You know, to what extent is it good that we actually have access to debt? Because my parents had much less access to debt and my grandparents had even less access to, you know, debt to finance. That's probably where some of that moral judgment right? comes in well, as look, well. If you go to the Bible, usury was like, you know, a sin, <laughs> yeah, exactly. right? Like, so the moral judgment is hardwired into a Christian culture, right? Uh, you know, it was this, you know, it's kind of part of, you know, I mean, I'm certainly not something that we talk about very much anymore, but it's like, I was raised in church and, you know, I nominally go to church that my wife is part of now, but like, I don't, I don't feel like I'm, I'm hearing a lot of sermons about usury anymore. Well, a lot of, this is such Although a sidetrack, this like, is yeah. such a sidetrack, but a lot of churches are very into debt-free construction. Right, so like they only will build another building like after they have raised mm. all of the money for it, that sort of thing, mm. and that's something that's it's more of a you know a new evangelical. Thing. Well, you know, yeah, but it's but yeah, but there's there's definitely like the moral tax yeah. that comes from debt. Our culture is schizophrenic because it's it's true. Yeah. Debt is quote bad, right? You know, it limits your freedom. It's But know, I have a great credit score because I've always paid my student loans on time. You know, <laughs> like I didn't I was able to buy a house because my credit score had been strengthened from my student that's loan right. payment. You're supposed to take out debt because <laughs> yes. that's the only way to get a good credit and score. So one of the things with this debt is you have to have a job yeah. to pay it. Well, I mean, you don't have to, but that's the typical mechanism. You're trapped in a job that you have to have in order to make these payments. Have you done any exploration of, I mean, I know there's dynamics about work that are different and contribute to burnout. We talked about it last time, performative aspects of work, you know, the the, the, the unpredictability of the, the schedule, the fact that I have to think about what time I respond to what, you know, e, you know electronic communication platform. Is there also some notion of the, the work that's actually being done? And when I think about it, I think of, you know, Derek Thompson's recent piece in The Atlantic about... You know, the best minds of this generation are being used to work at Amazon and Facebook and figure out ways to serve us with more ads for stuff we don't need. Like, right. is there any sort and of the fulfillment? The generation created mortgage-backed securities. <laughs> That's true. That was, I was, that was my first job out of college. I traded mortgage-backed securities. I mean, I was, yeah, part of that problem. Um, but anyway, is there any, is there any of that? Like, we t- millennial, there's one stereotype of millennials that they need fulfillment, Right. Well, is yeah. there any fulfillment in some of these jobs? Is that at all a thread? Oh, man. There's so many things going on. I mean, I think <laughs> that part of it, like, late-stage capitalism is filled with bullshit jobs. Uh, there's a book that's not very good about that this topic where he just, like, looks at all of these jobs that are kind of like these wasteful yeah, when you say middle bullshit managers. job, like what is that? Yeah, middle managers, make work. like Yeah, like make work people. And I think that's different, though, than... Uh, people that you know the greatest minds of our generation making ads for amazon uh and i think that there's a lot of ambivalence but it's kind of you know the classic example is the person who goes to an expensive law school and is like okay i'm going to take 10 years 
and work myself into the ground at like a high powered firm in order to pay off my debt. <laughs> right. Like there is you have to pay that price. Yeah. In order to get that education that, you know, hopefully in 10 years, you'll be able to start living your life. I think this is actually true in academia as well. You're like, I'm going to give up 10 years of my life as a graduate student and, and you know, sure. getting tenure with the idea that once I achieve tenure, I will start my life clock. Doing a podcast, doing interesting <laughs> stuff. <laughs> Which I think sometimes that happens, but then a lot, of, I've talked to a lot of people who've gotten tenure who are like, uh. Uh, Well, yeah, I mean, there's a whole other side of it. Like, yeah. oh, oh yeah, I got to be on all these committees and do all this service and all these other things that I was somewhat protected from before. Right, and like what happened to yeah. those 10 years of my life. Yes. Um, and so I think that people are ambivalent about that but at the same time there's a huge ambivalence about people doing passion jobs because yeah. passion is like the number one way to get exploited in this economy sure yeah <laughs> right so like you the more passionate you are about a job the more cool a job is like the more likely the the person who wants it is going to be exploited in some way and so I think there's increasing ambivalence on that side, too. So more people who have left academia, who have left journalism, have left writing in order to pursue, like, J-O-Bs, you know, like, just a job yep. that is 40 just hours a, a week that gives me a solid paycheck that doesn't make me feel like crap all the time. Um, so it's coming from both sides in an interesting way. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting market dynamic, right? I mean, that's just that's markets working, right? Is that right. When, when there's a high status job that seems cool, yep, that has you know like, that I get to pursue my passion. Well, lots of people want it. Well, when lots of people want it, yeah, we can guess pay what? less, work more hours for less, less benefits. You have no power, right? Unless which, you're really good. Which uh, I think is why you're seeing more unionization efforts sure. right now at cool jobs, which people are like. Oh, how like why would BuzzFeed unionize? And you're like, because our work conditions are crap. Really? I mean, they've gotten better, but like, or same with Amazon, same with uh, uh, what's it going to do? Academics mm -hmm. more and more. Mm -hmm. You know, there are some student unions that have been around for a long time, but more places are advocating for it. So, but yeah, so yeah, so it's an attempt to rebalance once you're kind of yeah in the position of exploitation, which is I guess slightly different. So you know, you basically were like, has the nature of the job changed right and i think there's multiple you know so there's the the umbrella of the always on if you're at the high end and the lack of a schedule and reliability at the low end that are the job itself is still the job sure but it's there are things that are around the job in terms of you know somehow we have to communicate with each other at all hours mm -hmm. um i don't quite understand that one uh but I also like to work alone, so I don't understand communicating with people. Anymore. Yeah, I have a colleague in um, upper management at this institution who has a filter on, uh, I will use they as the, uh, as the pronoun, on their email so that it never, an email can never go out between 10 and 3. Yes. But it's all just for appearance, right? The emails are still being written, written and sent at two it's, in the morning. Yes. It's just that the, the, the filter says, "I don't want it to. I don't want an employee of mine or a colleague of mine to which see is, that." Which it's is sort of like the inverse of norm this. thing, right? It's actually oh, yeah. it, you know, it's it is, it is there is some value in sending the signal that I'm in upper management and I am yeah not, hugely I am absolutely not expecting you to respond to this email at four in the morning. Um, so there's value in that. Now, I would also encourage this colleague to 
have some balance in their life and <laughs> yeah. maybe not be sending emails at two in the morning. Um, you know, let's 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 you know, figure out how to triage the fires a little bit right. more. Um, right. But uh, but yeah, but you know, so there's that part. But you know, in terms of what the actual work is, like we talked about this last time, work is just problem solving, right? The set of problems that you solve are still the set of problems that we solve, and depending on what job you have. It may change or not change, right? Sometimes technology comes and it changes the nature of your job over the course of your career. And sometimes your job is still like, you know, I type words onto a computer screen and I do statistical analysis, right? And now I have different technologies to do that. But at the end of the day, I have to come up with an idea. I have to execute the idea. And right. I have to try, to try and find an answer to a question, right? So my job, I answer questions, right? Um, you know, your job, at least part of it, the teaching part of it is I create a structure in which students acquire skills, right? Presumably. You, that, you guys, that's such a narrow understanding of what your job is. Yeah. Like, because well, not only do you have to teach and answer questions, but you also have to figure out how to get those questions published. You have to, you know, market yourself through a podcast and like prove that you're doing work in some way. Like, you have to respond to people in, in all these different yeah, ways. Yeah, that, 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 those are parts of my job. And yeah, and then those are, you know, if I'm, you know, to do a whole job description, yes, I would describe them as such right yeah. but like if i'm really distilling it down the value i create right is i answer questions and i deliver them in a language that people understand right so that's, price, that's, i mean that's, i that's think where that's where you know and you know when i was part of a larger consulting firm i came up with this whole schematic i was like look this is what we do we have to be good in these three things right and you know yes the boxes got expanded as I, you know, if I thought about it, but if I'm really saying what's the essence of it, the essence of the problem is people had questions about the economy that they wanted answered, you know, or some question that relied on economic data or economic methods. And my job and our team's job was to provide an answer that usually because it wasn't being written for an academic audience was interpretable to a audience of a certain level, depending whether that's a policymaker or the public. And, you know, then there's the management side of that in terms of making sure the client is happy. Yeah, but I, I don't think the average person has that kind of, of a mechanistic view of their work. No, they work. don't. Like they, they, they view themselves as trying to find their way within an organization mm -hmm. and figure out a way to add value, whether or not that value is de derived from an understanding of how the company creates value and their role in it, or just like trying to gain some social status in this hierarchy. And, and well, and a lot of times, especially during economic downturns, the way that you try to prove that you are adding value in some way to your larger organization, like the, the clearest signal is just to work more. Yeah. It's not necessarily to work more effectively. Get more done. Or it's to just, get, yeah, yeah, it's just like putting in those hours and showing that you're putting in those hours, maybe by emailing at 2 a.m. Sure, sending a signal. And oh, there's, no, there's whole companies that have, you know, and not just companies, there's whole industries in which that's the culture. Yeah. Which is insane. Well, have you read this book? It's called Counterproductive by no. Melissa Gregg. Oh, I'm, I'm in love with it. So she, she's a PhD. I don't know what in, but she is a just a researcher at Intel now. So basically, they and she's like specializes in time use. So they just pay her to like look at what their people at Intel are doing with their time. And what she saw, not only, like she looked historically to look at these times um, when productivity manuals 
became very popular. Oh, yeah. And she's, there's spikes in like the first time, so the 1970s, makes sense. Second times in the 1990s, kind of like the 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 late 80s and early 90s. So kind of the second wave of you know the stuff that happened in the 80s, and then also corresponds with a lot of the panicked literature about workaholism. There's just a hmm. lot of like psychologists and stuff writing books about workaholism during that time, and then productivity apps and more books about productivity coming out in the aftermath of the recession now. And the thing that she found is, like, all of this advice, it's basically trying to, like, there's this phrase that she used that I just love where it's about how productivity, like, our conception of productivity is, you know, creating more and more radical ideas of of solitude Hmm. in order to, like, create what is conceived of as productivity. And so that means whittling down your purpose, maybe, to that one thing that you do and then outsourcing all of that other stuff that might be part of yeah. your job description to other people. Sure. So like maybe you do inbox zero and you like spray off all these emails to people. What you're really doing is creating more work for other people. Mm-hmm. Yes. No. Uh, <laughs> in the effort constraint world, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, I, I teach a class here on social skills and social networks. And part of that is in you know, the MBA program. So we're dealing with people who are within organizations. Yeah. And uh, we had a long conversation just on Monday about bureaucracies and how they excel in pushing effort off on, uh, you know, I'm trying yeah. to manage my own effort. So how do I keep my own effort high? Sure. Push, push it as off. much onto other people as possible. Yep. And, you know, to the extent that I can do so without any market pushing back on me, I'm going to. And which is why bureaucracies are famous for lots of paperwork that you hate uh, that, you know, because that's basically somebody saying, yeah. hey, why am I doing all this work? It's just five minutes. We'll just have everybody take five <laughs> minutes out of their day right. and fill out this form. And won't that, well, I will have all this time. And then you go, oh, wait a second. We just took five minutes from 2,000 people every day, right? And you go, oh, wait, that's like, you know, a lot of workers <laughs> that we've essentially just like lit on fire. Um, and then you add people like me who basically like when you make me do it, I, that's, that, that's, that's not just the five minutes. It's like half the day. Right. Right. Because I have to convince myself to do it. <laughs> you gotta, yeah. And then you gotta warm yourself like, up. Like once I do it, I'm going to then complain about the fact that I even had to do it at all. You sound like um, you have some personal experience do, with this. Right. Do, I, uh, or, yeah, I do, Justin. Uh, but, in the, you know, the point is, is that, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, the, yes. The, look, there is there is a logic to specialization. Right. That's, you know. It goes back to Adam Smith. That's kind of, yes, do what you're good at. But there is a balance that comes from not being blinded by the fact that, you know, the whole reason we feel like we have to teach this class on social networks and social skills is people don't understand that this is actually essential to their success. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. And as a result, we don't invest in it. Right. And it takes real work to build your social network and to be skilled enough to actually add value to it and extract value to it. But if you can, you will be very successful. Right. But, you know, it's not my job. You know, and, you know, when I, we do this in the consulting practice, like when I go to companies, I'm always at the, one of the first questions I ask people is which person in this company or in this office has it in their job description to build bridges between your workers? Second question, 
who has it in their job description that they're here to help facilitate bonds amongst workers. Yeah, I have yet to find anybody. a company who has a person. There's people who do it. They'll say, oh, yeah, so-and-so does that and so-and-so does that and so-and-so does that. But they do it because it's their nature. Yeah. Right? They're not doing it because, you know, and they're doing it as a extra burden. And frequently what we see in those people is that they do burn out. They quit, they leave, and then your organization network falls apart because they were the actual only node connecting the people mm. uh, to you know each other. And you know it's basically yeah, I was spending all of my time because they're the only person people go to to ask for help. They're the people you know. The bad version is that they become the people that then have to listen to everybody vent. Yeah. Right. Which research says is the only part of social networking that doesn't lead to your success. If you're just the person that people vent to, all of this being you're just paying an effort tax. Right. Well, man, whatever. There is some skill that comes from yada, yada, yada. But and no one the, promotes you for being yeah. that person. No, no. But you, you know, no. e- even just, at, you know, so either asking for help gets you promoted. Right. Because you figure it out faster. Providing help gets you promoted because both you're a helper and you get more skilled. It's the teaching thing. The best way to learn something is to teach somebody. So if you're helping other people, then, yeah, great. Like, I'm going to get better at what I do and I'm going to learn something else about how it applies to somebody else. And that's all good stuff, right? So that's good social networking. But like to the extent that you're the person that people just vent to all day long, at least the evidence that, you know, a researcher at Microsoft has looked at suggests that that doesn't lead to uh, your success. But, you know, it's easy to forget about that stuff, to be like, my job is to go and sit in my office and produce reports. So... I'd be really interested to hear what you think about this. Is Greg and then a couple other authors that I've read are coming to this new consensus that part of the reason for why work is so bad on so many different levels is because of consultants. <laughs> and it's not because of, I think, consultants like you. We're thinking more of like the classic McKinsey No, no, I know exactly who you're thinking of. Right? And I, I, I don't, I usually, I mean, this is my first foray into management I, consulting, was, and it's basically to tell you, you need to invest in social networks. <laughs> yes. um, so most consultants say the opposite, no, right? No, it's, it's get rid of everything. Get rid cut, of it. Cut, cut, And you so know. the problem is twofold. One is that the, they came in 70s, 80s, 90s, and they look at a situation where you have support staff in place either to build social networks or to actually make it so that people can focus on what their actual job is instead of the five minutes that they have to spend doing the form. And all those people get cut. So now you have people who are doing their core competency, but are also trying to make up for all of those jobs that were cut in some way. The second thing, and this to me is the most provocative and compelling, is that consultants, the way that they rose internally in their firms is by working all the time, which was an idea that they also, many of them had internalized during their education, and then also welcoming their MBA, whatever. And, and McKinsey especially had a cutthroat culture of like, you you burn out like mm-hmm. they they purposely burn people out to see who survives. I've got several colleagues that worked at uh, Anderson Consulting or Accenture yeah. who are now in academia because they, they didn't want to right? work this hard and travel as much. And but their ideas about what hard work looks like yeah. then get mapped on to the way that they cut things yes, and the way sure. the people that sort of work that is rewarded in the companies where they consult. So I'm going to reframe this slightly, but I think it's right. The shorter, the the more, I guess, more abstract version, which takes it out of just consultants. Yeah. Basically, the issue is economy-wide, the survival of the fittest is rewarding maybe not the people that we want to reward. 
right? Right. You know, so if you just look at who gets promoted, right? Um, the story that I use, I'm going to go back to student loans because it was on Michael Lewis's podcast, right? So he interviewed this person who worked at a call center. Mm-hmm. I remember. Um, yep. Uh, servicing student loans. And she talks about, you know, so he leads to that by talking to a person who qualified for all the federal student loan forgiveness that nobody got literally, like a hundred people got, right? And so he's trying to figure out why. So he goes and he talks to this person who recently had quit serving at one of the call centers. She's like, well, this is the way this works. I have a screen in front of me and I'm supposed to be done talking to you in seven minutes because this company is paid by the federal government basically to service, they have outsourced the student loan. The only way they make money is by showing, look, we had lots of call volume. They don't make money if they solve your problem. Right. Right? So who gets promoted within this particular organization? Time to resolution, I would imagine. The person who's willing to, at any cost, basically get you off the phone in seven minutes. Yeah. Right? So now you've said, okay, well, who is that person? Is that really the person that we want to promote? But we've done that throughout the economy. Yeah. Right. We have promoted the person who is willing to go the furthest, whether it's work the hardest. That's that's the good version. The bad version is cheat, lie, steal. Right. Yeah. Why not um, hang up on every fourth call to you keep know, your average down? Right. Or, you know, do whatever. As long as I succeed in, quote, the bottom line. Yeah. Right. We promoted that. And so sure, those, get people, what you measure. those people have now accumulated power and prestige and status, right? And so the problem that we face is, A, these people are now the ones who have the power and the de- are making the decisions, and they're maybe not the people that we want making decisions. And B, but they're also then the people that are the role models, yeah. Yeah. right? And so, you know, we- Gatekeepers, role models, the whole thing. You yeah. know, in terms of, well, how do we then push back as a society? And this is the problem with a pure market oriented with markets as a religion because yeah. markets aren't a religion markets are supposed to serve a purpose yeah they have, they're supposed to help us allocate scarce resources without using central planning right or a social network or something like that right we think look there's lots of benefits to allocating it just oh you solve a problem better than me great succeed right but usually there's some you need some sort of balance to just market success right and we don't we have some kind of maybe little things out there, but there's nothing that's that's ultimately really pushing it. And so, yeah, we're seeing some of the the pathology of market as a religion, and it shows up in the empowerment of a consultant. Oh, well, let's, let's just bring a consultant in, and they'll come in and they'll solve all our problems for us. Um, and it's always, you know, then we'll two years later we'll hire a different consultant to solve our new problem um, instead of just having the capacity to solve our own problems. Well, I feel like we're coming up against a bit of a constraint. And that constraint is um, you and you yeah. need to get out for a run. And that's yeah, you know, I'm trying very... to make leisure time for myself. Yeah, exactly. Structured leisure time. Exactly. Schedule it <laughs> yes. around unpredictable things like mm-hmm. this podcast. Um, it's been awesome having you back in. Yeah. So, again, tell us when the book is coming out and how people can find it. Uh, the book is coming out on September 22nd. You can pre-order on Amazon, and you know I, I don't know how I feel about that. You can. <laughs> there's something called IndieBound, which uh, is where I go to that. Like you put in your zip code, and it tells you you know what your local indie sure. bookstore is, and you can order from there. Here in Missoula, there are, we have many bookstores where you can find it. Well, yeah. you will be able to find it. So. Awesome. Well, and it was great to kind of 
just reconnect, get your thoughts on this important stuff. Yeah. And uh, best of luck with the book. We'll have to check in again when it, when it comes out and, and keep the conversation going. That'd be great. Thank you so much. Okay, such a fun episode. Get yourself online and pre-order Anne's book and check out her regular reporting at BuzzFeed. It is fantastic. She is bringing voice and clarity to some important issues. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that A New Angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors, These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps, executive producer Stefan Borsum, and interns Aspen Runkel and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word, and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.